And so uh, this morning we're wrapping up chapter 2 in, in Ephesians, and Paul has done this amazing thing. He's really done this amazing thing when you, when you think about what is here. And I, and I want us to hear it in light of that. Now recognize that the church in Ephesus, when they heard this letter, when it was presented to them, the whole thing would have been read, right? It's not like they got together and, and the speaker got up and he read and he said, this, this morning I'm going to be reading uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, and he read it and he said, now everybody go home. Next week, come back, we're going to be in chapter 3. No, when, when they would have gathered together, they would have read the whole thing, just start at the beginning and read it all the way through, and they're just pouring over it. And they would get to the end, and then they'd go back through, and they're hammering out the particulars. Well, what did he mean when he said this? And how does this work? And so in some sense, we have this thing working against us because we're looking at it and really zooming in and, and getting this up-close focus, which for whatever reason, it tends to produce in us this, this farsightedness, right? And, and so there's this absence of, of farsightedness and being able to see kind of the forest because we're so intently focused on in this one tree, this one thing, this one pebble right here in front of us. But if we zoom out, if we zoom out and, and we have all of 2, 1 through 22 firmly implanted, implanted in our mind in front of us, we see this beautiful movement from what? From death to life. Remember we talked about this? We all said that we were dead. He made us alive. We were formerly alienated and we were far off and he came near to us and he drew us near. And so he's talking about these amazing transformations that have happened in the lives of people who were formerly not reconciled, people who were formerly not in Christ. But he does it in reference to the church, this, this being this group. And the church, in a very real sense, is a living organism, right? And so it's not these walls. And I would say four walls, but we recognize we have an odd-shaped building. That makes no sense to us. But a church is so much more than just this, this structure, so much more than this physical space, so much more than these uh, few acres of land we have here on Wesley Street. It's so much more than the 90-plus churches of our community. It's so much more than the churches of Hunt County. The church is this international endeavor with God as its author, with Christ as its foundation. Amen? Amen. So we went into this discussion in chapter 2, but the way that Paul had ended chapter 1, he sets it up and he gives us this clear understanding. In chapter 1, he says in verse 22, he says, And he put all things under his feet. All things are in submission to Jesus. And he gave him his head over all things to the church. God, in his infinite wisdom, did something that you and I likely would not do. God, in his infinite wisdom, in his sovereignty, did something that you and I likely, if we're to look at how the church has been for a couple thousand years of its history, likely would not do. He entrusted the most precious thing that he's got, his son, crucified, resurrected, and ascended. He appointed that son and gave him over to the church. And the church operates in the outflow of that understanding. The church only operates well in the outflow of the understanding that Jesus Christ is the head over all things. And in that capacity, he was given to the church. And so it's amazing then, with that understanding, that he proceeds from this discussion of the Son to discussion of dead people. I don't know how many of you have spent much time in funeral homes. 
I took a, a t- class in college, which was called the philosophy of death and dying. It, it fit a block of, of schedule in my time. I was a commuting student, so I didn't look for classes I liked. I looked for classes that didn't make me drive every day of the week. And so I took the philosophy of death and dying. And uh, one day in the class, we got to handle human remains, uh, cremated remains, not dead people laying in coffins. That would be awkward for a college student anyway. And so, and so they're passing around these bags of leftover remains. People had never claimed them. And so they're passing that around, and you look at it, and it's not the type of thing you say, I want to give you something special, right? Like, you, nobody's looking at these remains and saying, I can't wait to go home and put this, this bag of nondescript person and, and some bone fragments on my mantle and then just give it stuff, walk by and say nice things to it. Anybody in here want to do that? Because we are looking to help you, creepy person. Sometimes people raise their hands and, and, and deacons step up and, and say, can I help you? Let's talk. You're creepy. But so in that, it, we recognize that, that this is basically what God has done. He gave to dead people his son so that he might make them alive. He gave to alienated people his son so that he might draw them near. And so what Paul is doing here in 19 through 22 is, is really putting a nice ribbon, putting a nice bow on this discussion that began in verse 1 with, you were dead. Let's read 19 through 22 together. He says, so then, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And speaking of Christ, it says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This amazing thing has happened. This amazing thing uh, has been given to the church. Jesus Christ has been given to the church. And we find out here in the end how all these things are kind of coming together. So Paul starts in and he says, so then you you are no longer strangers and aliens. Look back at verse 18. Look back at verse 18. He said, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ has, through his power in him, he has brought together the Jew and the Gentile. We spent uh, some time last week talking about the fact that there is no longer any division in church. When we create divisions, we're creating something scripture, quite honestly, does not afford. It doesn't, doesn't allow for. And so when we look at our own body and we went to some of the particulars, it doesn't separate, it doesn't allow for us to create distinction between rich and poor. Ridgecrest, it doesn't allow for us to create the distinction between charter members and those that came later. Do you hear me on that? There's no distinction there. It's not that one is more valuable or one is more precious than the other, but in this, in this construction of what church is, we're on Johnny-come-latelys. Do you, see, do you see that? Do you see that? He's joined all of us together by the power of his spirit in one body together. And in that body there is no distinction. Because we're all one in Christ. And so in that there is no place for us to, to enter into distinctions of charter and those that came later. And, and people that were apart when this pastor was here. And people that were apart when that pastor was here. Those things are important, certainly, in the life of a church. Because they point to the continuity and the blessings of God over a course of time. But they are not grounds for distinction. 
Because the distinction that we have is that we are one body. We are the third race, if you will. We are Christians. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? Does it transform the way that you interact and you relate to other people? Because in that, friends, in that, this is why we're able to have this Titus 2 type of ministry where an older man is able to go to a younger man and they're able to relate because they recognize one just has more seasoning in his life of Christ. And an older woman is able to pour out her life to a younger woman because she has more seasoning in her life of Christ. Do you see that? That's the way that God has set this thing up and established it to be, where the older pours into the younger, where the younger gives energy and vitality to the older. We are one in Christ. Everybody with a jacked up life in the past is one in Christ. Everybody who is basically a good and moral person is one in Christ. Neither one of you are closer to Jesus. God has drawn you both in and saved you both and reconciled you both in Jesus. You are both equally distant and far off and unsaved and lost and headed to hell. This is the reality we see in the text. And he has brought you both near in the church. It should be, actually, it should be not this hodgepodge and gumbo, but it should actually be this type of melting pot where we see this homogenous group produced inside of it. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Because I don't think some of you do. I think some of the distinctions we make over and over again in church on a variety of issues points to the fact that we don't believe that. And, and the, the kind of coup de grace of what Paul is getting here, the, 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 the final summation of his argument rests on our understanding. It rests on our infusion. It rests on us identifying with this truth. To go all the way through chapter 2 as a body together and not come through on the end of it and say, yes, we are one in Christ, means that you have missed, you have wasted the last several weeks of your time coming here. That's just what it means. You're fooling yourself. If you can read chapter 2 in Ephesians and get through the end of this and say, yes, but I, or yes, but we, and think that you have some special distinction for your particular manifestation of belief in Jesus Christ. Do you hear me on that? I have no room to boast. Paul says he has no room to boast. None of us here has a place for boasting, for pridefulness, for arrogance, for my way or the highway manifestations of Christianity. We are all humble beggars at the gate of a king who chose to be incredibly kind and merciful to us. Why? Because he is kind, because he is merciful, and because he alone is righteous. He drew us. Do you see that? not coming down hard on any one group. I'm coming hard on all of us. I'm coming down hard on all of us with this understanding that we are wholly one in Jesus. We will never have unity in a church until we get this. We will never have unity in a church if any discussion centers around, I would like to have it this way. I would like to have it that way. And it separates you from doing ministry with others. You know what a great unfortunate thing would be? That we would celebrate 50 years of life together here at Ridgecrest and that when we reflect upon that, we'd focus more on the divisions that erupted than in the unification that was able to take place. You know what the great joy and amazing thing over 50 years is? Is repeated instances of the miracles of salvation and life transformation. 
of the sick made well, of the dead made alive, of marriages restored, of families reunited, of missionaries raised up and sent out, of of kids growing up at the church, surrendering their lives to the gospel and going out, of God leading families through hurt, through pain, through difficulty. That is the amazing tale of 50 years. God in his faithfulness, not us in our ingenuity. Do you hear me on that? Look what he says here. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer nobodies in the kingdom. You're no longer strangers and aliens. And what is he talking about there? Strangers are, are, are this kind of this transient person who's, who's not really a, among the people. He says, look, this is no longer who you are. You're no longer this person who walks into the land and, and doesn't know their way around. You're no longer this person who comes in there and is just kind of lost, fumbling, bumbling on through the city. I remember when Valerie and I went to Prague the first time, it was this vision trip. Vision gets slapped on anything and it gets made holy. So it was a vision trip to Prague from the U.S. It was a vacation. It was a vacation. But it was, this, it was a vision trip in, in some sense. We went to meet the people that would be our supervisors, our team there. And when we arrived in the city, we were so lost. We went to the, the, the cab line, and we told the cab driver, said, this is where our hotel is, the Hotel Olshanka. I got news for you. If you go to Prague, don't ever stay there. It's a terrible place. Really, you should write that down. If you ever go to Prague, don't stay there. And so we told the cab driver, this is where it is. Do you know where it's at? He said, yes. He was lying. He did not know where it was at. This is also another good indication the place you're staying isn't nice, right? If your cab driver doesn't know it, you shouldn't stay there. You should ask the cab driver, where should I stay? And you should stay there instead. And so our cab driver's driving along. We don't know. We've never been to Prague before. And he stops in the middle of the street, gets out of the car, and starts walking around and knocking on doors and asking people where the hotel is. And I just thought, oh, man, this is not going well, you know, not going well at all. None of these signs are in English. And so we, we check in, and, and we're trying to, to find our way around the city, and we really don't understand where anything is. And we're trying to find all the big magical sites and, and the Charles Bridge and the castle and all these things. We were strangers in the city. We were strangers in the city. We didn't have any idea where anything was, and nobody was being particularly kind to us, inviting us in and, and putting, their shoulder, putting their arm around our shoulders and saying, it's okay, I'll show you. We were strangers. To be a stranger is to be alone. To be a stranger is to be cold and afraid. To be a stranger is to have no place where you necessarily call your home and to be in a foreign land. And what Paul tells them here, he says, you are no longer strangers. He adds to that, he says, you are no longer aliens. An alien is a person who lives in a land who has a legal status in the land, but is not a, a resident. They're not born there, right? And so they are a legal, a legal alien. They have protection and provision from the government, but they are still set out from the other people. Look what he says here. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. This thing that used to be your reality, this coldness that used to permeate your life, this separation, this lone ranger feeling that used to be this for you, that is no longer your story. It is no longer your lot. What was said of them in, in chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, remember 
that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. These things are no longer true of you. These things are no longer true for the, the individual who surrenders their life to God in Jesus Christ. You have been made one. You have been made whole. Look what he says here. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You're fellow citizens. You have been spiritually naturalized. You have been spiritually joined in. You have been spiritually made new. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Amen. Hallelujah. This is why I say there is no distinction that we are able to legitimately make between those who are members of Ridgecrest in the beginning and those who are members of Ridgecrest today. That we are not able to make a distinction between those who are members of any church at any time, anywhere, different from those of us who are members of this church in this time at this place. You see what I'm saying? Because what Paul is arguing here is that to be a part of the body of Christ is to be a member of of the household of God. Do you see that? Church is something so much larger than Ridgecrest. Church is something so much larger than Greenville. Church is something so much larger than Hunt County or whatever your experience tells you and communicates to you. What he says here is that you've been made fellow citizens. You have been joined together as the imagery he's about to use with the household of God. Now look what he's going to do. He's going to talk about a couple of images. He's going to bring in this image of, of kind of the church constructed and built up. Try and catch this vision that Paul has. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, how does this, this building begin to take place in our lives? How does this, this building, this being built up, begin to take place in our lives? Well, if you look back at... Uh, Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him, so speaking of Christ, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This brought you in. This identified you. This caused you to be built. This caused you to be added on top of this. Look, he says, you are built passively on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we read this, and, and maybe you've read through 1 Corinthians, you say, you know, this, this sounds awfully familiar, this idea of, of foundations and being built, and, and, you know, and then somebody starts clapping, and somebody else starts singing, standing on the promises. Nobody? Nobody? Okay. And so nobody sings that song. So coming back into this, he says, it's on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Now, what is the sum and substance of what he's getting at here? What he's talking about is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended. That is the foundation of their ministry. The apostles, those that were, that were privileged to have an audience with Christ after his crucifixion. This is, this is what it takes to be an apostle. So if you see somebody on television today who refers to themselves as an apostle, one, either they're, they're amazingly old and they have this great skin cream that you should get, or two, that they're, they're, they're putting a title on themselves that is not true, okay? Let's just, let's just leave it at that. But he says that it is of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so we read in this and we say, okay, so I get it. It's those that saw Jesus that went around and told others about him. They're being built on that foundation. But it's also this idea, he says, the prophets. Well, Paul, in this case, he's not talking about 
Old Testament prophets. You say, well, Matt, how do you get that? I thought every prophet who lived was a prophet in the Old Testament. I say to you, well, friend, this is, this is a common misconception. This is a common misconception. Look at uh, Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is when? As it is now been revealed to who? Or to whom? To his holy apostles and who? And prophets. And prophets. By the Spirit. So what he's talking about here are those that would go out and would proclaim. To be a prophet is to proclaim. To proclaim. To speak about. To preach about. And so when you engage in, in proclaiming about Jesus, in some sense, and I wouldn't go to, to Cotton Patch this afternoon and stand up and say, I'm going to prophesy out of y'all! And do that, they're going to ask you to leave. It's going to be awkward, right? But in some sense... Testimony about Jesus, testimony and communication about Jesus is prophesying. So it's not looking at the stars, reading tea leaves or something else, but testimony about Jesus is in some sense prophesying. In fact, actually one of the early books on, or textbooks on preaching was called The Art of Prophesying. The Art of Prophesying. What he says here is that your foundation is built on the testimony of Jesus. Is this not true for your life and for my life? That as you look over the course of your life, you recognize that your life has been built on the foundations of words imparted to you, truth from Scripture imparted to you by others. And so I guess in some sense you could ultimately say that ours today is still built upon the foundation of the apostles, Paul and others who who wrote Scripture as carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophets who proclaimed, but also those who are faithful to continue to proclaim today the true words of Scripture. And our faith is being built on their testimony, their proclamation. But this amazing thing happens. See, church can't happen, and, and this, this building can't happen. It can't be just however we want to make it, however we want to kind of bend and, and conjole it into. It can't be everything that we want it to be. It can only be what Christ has established it to be. Do you understand that? Because that's critically important. Christ as the head of the church, Christ as the governing factor in building and constructing the church. Christ is the head of the church. Let me say it one more time. And Christ is the governing factor for building and establishing the church. He says here, Christ himself being the cornerstone. Flip over to Isaiah Isaiah 28, 16 through 17a. The prophet writes, he says, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone tested, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line. It's this beautiful declaration there in Isaiah, realizing Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Do you catch this? He is the head of the church. What does that mean? He exercises authority and control over the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. So in in building practices and principles, they would get ready and they would lay out the foundation and they would take this cornerstone, this massive cornerstone, and some archaeological 
archaeological evidence indicates that these things could be upwards of 38 feet in size. Everybody say, you guys aren't good at whistling. I'm not good at whistling. We'll just go with it. And so they would be massive, these massive stones put in there. And what this stone is doing is showing this true point from which everything else is measured from. So all directionality is, is taken from this cornerstone. All the dimensions are taken and led off of this cornerstone. It is the most important part of the whole structure. Without this cornerstone, they don't know how to lay out the rest of the building. Without this cornerstone, everybody could just put, place, put things in different places and build on it willy-nilly as they see fit. But when this cornerstone is put in place, it regulates everything about the structure. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone for every church that is faithful to him. Do you see the weight of that? In 122 and 23, he says he is the head of all things in the church. And then here we read that he is the cornerstone. Jesus is the authority over all things in the church. Jesus is the governing factor in all things in the church. Any church which steers clear of Jesus and doesn't build themselves upon him is a church not recognized as being faithful to Jesus. Do you see that? Christ himself is is the cornerstone. Now Paul goes in, and what he's been doing is is kind of building in this, this general idea and understanding, but what he does in these last two verses is he is modifying Jesus. Modifying is in these, these, these clauses, these verses, all kind of point back to them. And you'll see in verse 21 it says, in whom. Verse 22 it says, in him, all pointing back at Jesus, okay? Do you see that? Well, look what he says here. He says, in whom, so in Jesus, the whole structure. What structure? The structure of the church. The the structure of the church. In Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This amazing thing is shown here. The church that moves away from Jesus is a church that dishonors Jesus and ceases to become a church and starts to become a civic organization. A church that, that, that stops putting Jesus forward and talking about him crucified, him resurrected, and him ascended, and making decisions from that starting point and that governing line as him as cornerstone is the church that ceases to function as a church and begins to function as a charitable organization. I've been a part of one of these churches. I've been a part of one of these churches. That at some point, it just it quit operating like a church. They did great and amazing things. But they weren't true to Jesus. A church like that is hollow, empty, and they would do all of us a favor by shutting the doors. By giving their, their goods and their services and their building, giving it all away. Make it a homeless shelter. Do something that actually serves a need in your community instead of leading people in the false gospel of just being kind to one another. Because a church that doesn't honor Jesus as the head and the cornerstone is a church that is doing damage to the kingdom of God. Look what he says here. In Jesus, the whole structure, every facet and enterprise of the church is being joined together. And what he's talking about is they would take these stones and they would, they would bring them together and they would, they would break off any, any rough edges or whatever so that they would come together and they would make nice corners, they'd make nice seams together. 
would pass this, they would take the stones and they would drill over into the stone. And they would create these holes in, in side-by-side stones and they would take a metal rod and they would place it between the two stones and they'd take molten metal and they would pour it in to hold these stones together. This is the picture of a church. This is the picture of church. That in Jesus Christ, we are being built together. In Jesus Christ, the church is being joined together. Jesus Christ is the one holding churches together. This is why when you move away from Jesus, you disband the church. When you move away from Jesus, because you dishonor the church. When you move away from Jesus, you're moving against the one thing that can hold the church together. You know the things that can't hold churches together? Families. Young people, old people, money. Those are things that prop up churches. But when Jesus is not in a church, the church is dying a slow death. And in fact, in many instances, the church is already dead. People just haven't realized it yet. Also recognize the church is growing. The church is growing. In the process of being joined together, it is growing. Our people are growing into maturity in Jesus Christ. Some of us have a lot of gray hairs, but no maturity in Jesus Christ. Others of us are young and excited. We think we have all the maturity, but all we have is young and boastful pride. You put those two things together in a room, and you know what you end up with? Chaos. Chaos. Misery. Hurt. Angst. Difficulty. Pride. Division. Church split. This is what happens. When we fail to advance Christ and advance anything else, we're working against the fact that he is joining us together. You are not the crusader for the church. Jesus Christ is. You are not the unifying factor of the church. Jesus Christ is. When you work against Jesus, you can't work for unity. When you work against Jesus, you can't work for the furtherance of the gospel. When you work against Jesus for any little pet project that you have, you are working against Jesus. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Jesus is joining us together. Look what he says here. And he grows them into the holy temple for the Lord. I don't know if you, if you catch this, but, but let, me just, let me just replace in whom with Jesus because that's what it's relating to. It says, in Jesus, the whole structure, the church, is being joined together. And it grows into a holy temple in Jesus. Do you catch that? Where does the church exist? Everybody say, in Jesus. Some of y'all don't believe this. Some of y'all are still asleep in an hour. I would ask you that question and you would jump up and do backflips. It would be awkward because you're not flexible. But let me ask you again because I really think you can do better when given some time. And this is building up. You're taking deep breaths as I talk. Where does the church exist? Everybody say, in Jesus. Jesus. There you go. Now you're awake. It's this amazing place. The church is not something localized at 6801 Wesley Street. The church is something that exists 
in Jesus. We manifest the church. Do you understand that? We show the invisible made visible. We show the invisible. We show the love of God in Jesus to those around us here locally. That is our mission. That is our job. And we do this by displaying all the fruits that God gives to the church, all the graces he gives to the church, because in Jesus, he's able to unite incredibly disparate factions. In Jesus, he's able to unite former enemies. In Jesus, he's able to unite people who are radically opposed to one another, husbands that hate wives, wives that hate husbands, children that hate parents, parents that despise children, enemies, former enemies. In Jesus, where we are able to be united. In Jesus, we're being joined together. This is the picture we see here. And he's able to take people who don't care for one another, that don't like one another, and he's able to make them what? Love one another, not get along, right? You've been to family reunions where people can't stand one another and they've, gotten, they've convinced folks, let's not have reunions every year because we really hate each other. Let's have them every two years. And you come together and say, oh, so good to see you. I saw you on Facebook. Yeah. Okay, where's my next cousin? They move over here and they talk to this guy and like, oh, so you're not a cousin. What are you doing? You're oh, just free food. Okay. And so they come back over and they go to their talk to their wife and they say, why do we come to these things? I hate my family. Have you been to a church like this? Have you been to a church where people just come and they put on their, their best and brightest faces, they put on their brave faces, they go out and they, they glad hand those around them and they pretend like they don't have problems in their life? You know, the reality is we walk into this place today, we are a church of hurting people. We're a church made up of people whose marriages are falling apart. We're a church made up of people that struggle with lust, pride, pornography. We're a church made up of people that struggle with issues of our faith and how to live that out in our community. We're a church made up of people who struggle with how do I militate against my own desire for pride? for my own desire for arrogance. How do I have it my way but show humility to those around me? We're a church made up of formerly dead people. And that's why we struggle. Because none of us is perfect. And the one who supposes that he or she is, oh, friend, if I could share with you the amazing grace of Jesus Christ that would set you free. Quit trying to be perfect. Just be what he has made you to be. He has made you to be free, and in Christ you are free indeed. This is what the church is. It's not a group of people who all decided to agree on a, on a given set of principles and get together at decidedly inconvenient times and uncomfortable seating. No. No. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is his body. The church is a group of people who have rightly recognized that they themselves could not get it right, that God got it right for us, and that we have received Jesus and he has made formerly dead people alive, drawn formerly far off people and brought them near. He is building us together into his holy temple. Therefore, as I am holy, be holy. That's what the Lord says to us. Look at this. This last phrase. He says, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Some of us, our hearts are so full of junk, pride, hurt, anger, 
frustration. Things aren't the way that they used to be. Things aren't moving as fast as I hoped they would. This thing is just a colossal waste of my time. This, these are the things I actually desire. These are the things I'm stuck with. Your heart is so full of junk. Your prayer. Your prayer needs to be that God would come in and he would do a work of removing those things, of exposing those things to you. One of the reasons churches have such a hard time existing and being together is because we're all so busy trying to impress those around us. One of the sweetest fellowships I've ever been able to be a part of is a fellowship of people who are truly broken because they don't have the facade of trying to show that they've got it together. That's what the church is. Those people just got it. They just realized it. Nobody is being fooled. Nobody's impressed. Nobody's impressed with the car you drive, the way you live, where your house is, or how together your family is. You know what we're impressed with? Your ability to rest fully on Jesus, on the grace that he gives you in your life. That is beautiful. That is amazing. And Jesus offers us an opportunity to present a picture of a life transformed. Because what he says here, he turns and he says, look, the church is being joined together. This whole structure has been putting, is being put together to reside in Jesus. And in him, you also. In him, Ridgecrest, the members of this body. In Jesus, you also are being built together. He's taking Valerie, he's taking Joe, he's taking Ken, he's taking me and Justin. He is building us together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God takes up his residence in our hearts by the power of his Spirit. And that Spirit is testifying us to what is true, what is false, and calling on us to, to surrender ourselves to him. But in that reality, there is difficulty. In that reality, there is difficulty because he is bringing people together from diverse backgrounds. Some of you have formerly hurt others in this church. Some of you have formerly been hurt by people in this church and they don't even recognize it. Some of our wives have been hurt by their husbands. They are broken women. And some of you husbands are too prideful and arrogant to even realize it. Some of you wives have been working against your husband being the leader and the head of your household for so long. He feels like he's got to ask you for permission before he goes to the bathroom. It's a true reality of what our families look like. We recognize in Jesus Christ there's an opportunity. There is the sole place and opportunity for reconciliation, for reunion, for, rest, for restoration, for unity. In Jesus, we are being built together. The picture of the true church is the picture of a group of people coming forward and saying, yes, I submit. Yes, use me. Yes, reside in me. Yes, I'll be joined together with people I otherwise wouldn't associate with. Why? For his exaltation, for his glory, for his renown. If we are to be a church for Jesus, then we are a church that has him as its head and him as its foundation. If we are to be a church which is able to, to bring about life change by the power of the Spirit, then we are a church which looks at Jesus as our head, Jesus as our head, and Jesus as our cornerstone. That's the church I want to be a part of.
That's the church I want to pastor. That's the church I want to see grow. I want to see us grow into this beautiful manifestation of his body, the invisible made visible in our lives broken. Not our lives as we suppose they should be, but our lives as they actually are. Because, friends, our lives as they actually are, messy, flawed, tragic, those are lives that show the power of the gospel, not the power of us to present a false facade. Do you want to be used by Jesus? Do you want to be built up into this beautiful display of his love and majesty? Submit yourself to Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus, look to Jesus, and be ready to be used by him and not to set limits on that use according to what your desires are, but according to the desires that he instead places in your heart. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we come to you. And God, we just ask that you would just continue to do work of, of healing in our hearts. And 50 years is a long time in our eyes, but just a blip on the line of eternity. God, in our hearts, 50 years, we look at our accomplishments. Help us to see those things that you have done internally. God, help us to focus on the movement of your spirit across time. And Father, now at this time in this place, help us to recognize the importance of us surrendering everything to you. God, that we might be built into the church that you desire us to be. God, help us to do well in submitting ourselves to you. Help us to do well in showing the invisible made manifest here at Ridgecrest. God, we recognize that this is only possible because of the work of your spirit. You came in and saved dead people. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you came near to us. In Jesus, we didn't draw near to you. You drew us near to you. You saved us. And God, so I pray, pray that we would recollect that, that we would focus on that, not what we've made of our lives, but what you have made them into. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to surrender their lives to you. God, that you would woo them with your love, that you would draw them by the power of your spirit, that your Holy Spirit would be working in their hearts and in their minds to convict them of sin. God, break their hearts. Bring them to yourself. Father, I pray that you'd be glorified in our lives and our thoughts and our actions. God, I thank you for the honor and privilege of gathering here today. And pray that we would all be able to boldly say that Jesus Christ is the head of this church, that he himself is the cornerstone of this church, just as you are the head of our lives and the cornerstone and the guiding principle of each and every breath we take, each and every decision we make. And Father, it is in you and in your Son that we boast. It is in you and in your Son that we trust. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.